bisexuality we think of she who crafted the ultimate definition of the beautiful b word and she is at the center of study and conversation around it named by teen vogue is one of the most renowned bisexual women making history she was chosen to represent massachusetts on the advocates 50 states 50 heroes list she's the editor of bi women quarterly has two anthologies the 42 country collection getting by voices of bisexuals around the world and this one recognize the voices of bisexual men speaker educator activist longtime harvard associate employee and now special guest of the blue hotel podcast welcome robin oaks thank you it's so good to be with you yours is the go-to everywhere as i alluded um, the most comprehensive way of defining bisexuality can you tell us about your coming to the definition and, and share it with us here now? Because it's nice to hear it in your voice. Like everything I have ever said or done, with very few exceptions, um, the definition of bisexuality, which is widely used and whose words I crafted, came out of a community process. I have the great fortune of being an educator and advocate who travels around the United States and the world, speaking about bisexuality and speaking about identity and sexuality more broadly. And the best thing about that work is that it puts me in contact with people from so many different places who are engaging in conversations about identity and about sexuality and about you know what these words mean and what they don't mean. And so what I try to do in my work is listen, listen very hard and listen thoughtfully and take in what people are telling me and then kind of compile it, organize it and turn it into something that is relatively easy to explain to others. So it's really, it's really not my own. I didn't sit up in an attic all by myself in the dark, you know, creating these ideas that I talk about, like everything I do is 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 been workshopped, most very literally workshopped by the community and comes out of that process. So before you give it to us, how long ago did you put all of these thoughts together and come up with something so cohesive and so you used as few words as anybody could to say so much? When did you do it? Thank you for that. I mean, it was a process that happened through the 90s and into the early 2000s. The first time I ever published the definition um, in my Getting By anthology was 2005, but it wasn't new then. It was something that had been in use for some time. There were definitely little tweaks that happened around that time period, but it's, it's you know, again, it's an evolutionary thing. And I'm not also, I'm not certain that it's done. It's actually stayed in its current form for couple of decades, but it's entirely possible and perhaps even likely that sometime in the future, somebody will say something to me that will make me think differently and, you know, change it yet again. The 2.0, as it were. Can you, can you recite it for us now? Sure. So here's, this is what bisexuality means to me. I call myself bisexual because I acknowledge that I have in myself the potential to be attracted romantically 
and or sexually to people of more than one gender, not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily in the same way, and not necessarily to the same degree. And for me, the bi and bisexual refers to the potential for attractions to people with gender similar to my own and different from my own. It's so good. It makes me giddy to hear it again <laughs> from your voice and to be here with you. Um, this this podcast has had 20-some episodes to date, and, wow. and and you were kind of at the top of my list since the beginning, but I didn't have the confidence to reach out to you until I had some some history with the podcast and some success with it, and then I thought it's time to have you on. So again, thank you for being here. Thanks. I'm pretty scary. I know. <laughs> I just didn't want I you to. Just, I didn't want you to say one of two things: nothing or no. <laughs> no one wants to hear that. Bisexuality has been. It seems to me uh, the conversation goes here often, and, and I think it needs to. Among women, it's been fetishized. So, so people will fetishize female bisexuality. And they will demonize male bisexuality. I'm generalizing, but that seems to be the way it goes quite often with many people. Can you speak to that, both of those, however you want to? There's a lot to unpack there, but one of the things underlying it is that many people think that for actual sex to happen, it requires at least one penis. And therefore, anything that two women could do together isn't that threatening because it's not in their minds real or serious. Uh, I, I think that's a piece of it. Um, in addition, I would say that most men in the United States have been raised to associate the word bisexual and women with girl-on-girl -girl porn. Um, and, and in the, most of those situations, um, it's two women having sex for a man, like for a man who is, who is the viewer or sometimes also the participant. And so I think that many men, when they think of bisexual women, they think of, oh, cool, I'd like to watch, or, oh, cool, threesomes. And of course, some bisexuality is probably that, but I would guess that most bisexuality is something entirely different. And to be bisexual doesn't require you know a male body involved. Uh, yeah. A male will often, to your point, put himself in the scene, or at least imagine being in the scene. And that's the definition for some men. Well, that some people, I'm just, always, I should always qualify with the word some, that some people are threatened by the idea of male bisexuality is one, in their minds for you know, male bisexuality to be at least enacted, it would require for one of the men involved to allow himself to be treated like a woman which in a sexist society is like, why would any man allow himself to be degraded? Like, that's terrible. That's horrible in their minds. You know, I feel like they're, they're giving up power. They're giving up all kinds of control. That, that, that scene is very threatening. And also, of course, it challenges the, you know, the stereo, all, all kinds of bisexuality challenge the idea. I believe there's this happily ever after myth that exists, that every single person out there has one person somewhere in the world who is your perfect life partner, your perfect match, your perfect complement, and that your job is to search high and low until you find that one person who, once you meet them, will meet your every needs in every way. And once you're with that person, you will never again need to have any kind of 
external relationships with anyone else. You will never fantasize about anyone else. You will never even find yourself attracted to anyone else because you've now you're now whole with your with your better half, right? And I think that that myth causes a lot of damage. I think that if you live with that myth, the very idea of bisexuality is threatening. Even for people who are monogamous, like I've always been monogamous in my own in my own relationships, but even there, like the idea that I could be married to my wife and still find other people attractive. Oh, heavens, how could that be? You know, and of course I do. I'm not, you know, one of my friends um, once said to me, we were walking down the street in Harvard Square and he, um, he was getting whiplash looking at all the guys who were, you know, who were on the street and passing by. And I turned to him and I said, I said, Joe, you're a married man. And he looked at me and he said, honey, I'm married, but not blind. He said, looking is one of the great pleasures of life. And I just thought, you know, he's, you're right. You're really, I, I had never thought about it that way, but I thought, actually, you're right. Like, it actually is a kind of, I, I enjoy those little moments when I look at someone and get that little spark of, of electricity. That's nice. That has nothing to do with my commitment to my relationship. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just like a little moment of delight. It's like seeing a beautiful sunset or something for me. It's, it's lovely and I enjoy it. But I think that in our culture, that can be seen as threatening. What do you think that we all try to think that we're not biased, but I think that in the 80s, uh, HIV and AIDS probably added to the, certainly added to the demonization of, of, of the gay population and certainly bisexuality. Um, and that hangover is not going away anytime soon. Can you speak to that? Yes. In the 1980s, you know, when we first became aware of HIV and AIDS, so much of the blame was placed on, on men who have sex with men, um, you know, primarily on gay men. And then bisexual men were seen as an extra threat. And often the way they were portrayed in the media was as these closeted married men who would sneak out and have sex with other men behind, you know, 7-Eleven dumpsters. And then they'd go back to their unsuspecting and always heterosexual wives and infect them with AIDS. Like that was the that was the trope of the, you know, the sneaky, closeted, bisexual, married man who was, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff at that time about the down low, like at least, you know, in, in the black community, like that, you know, all these men were like going out and doing all this stuff. And yeah, and then it just made gay and bisexual men portrayed as the culprits rather than as the victims. It made every man, every man who, who you know, same gender loving man suspect and dangerous. And it was a very, very horrible portrayal. And also I think very harmful because it made it unsafe for bisexual men to come out. It certainly made it that way for me. I'll tell you, those men do exist. I mean, the number one, it seems uh, prevalent word on Grindr, which if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's uh, typically, but not all, uh, men seeking men. Um, it's, uh, it's all genders really though. But one of the most used words is, is discreet, down low, no profile photo, men looking for men for some form of sex or, or sometimes just to chat. So those men do exist and a lot of them are married uh, to typically heterosexual women, not necessarily all, but typically. And so the down low exists still. But there's lots of uh, happy, loving couples, men with women who accept bisexuality in their man or, or are bisexual themselves or any combination therein. So honesty plays a huge role in all relationships, whether you're 
uh, straight or gay or that whole trope also is dangerous in that first of all I, I still remember once I read a study and I don't have a citation for the study because I've never actually seen it but it was a study of men who were arrested at rest stops for having sex with other men you know in I guess in public bathrooms and what was interesting about that study was that almost all of the men interviewed identified as heterosexual, not as bisexual or gay. And, you know, they had you know, a myriad of excuses and ways to explain that, like, well, we didn't talk, so it doesn't count, or I'm married, so it doesn't count, or I did him, he didn't do me, so it doesn't count, whatever, whatever. Like, but they had all these different ways to uh, justify and rationalize that. So um, one of the myths, I think, is that a bisexual identity makes you, coming out publicly as bisexual makes you dangerous. I think coming out publicly as bisexual makes you honest. There it is. Being honest with oneself is a freedom that uh, is unlike any other thing. I was reading lyrics from uh, the 1800s. I think it was 1814, Robin, that the Star Spangled Banner, land of the free and home of the brave. There's, there's so many contradictions in so many things. And, 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 and that's one as it relates to the things we're talking about now, because you would think that freedom... There's so many brave people among the community, LGBTQ. Um, but you'd think that freedom would include all of this stuff. And so when I hear that song sung, and, and I think about how many people aren't really free because they're being uh, pushed down, particularly in the southern states. Some parts of, this, of the United States, it's the freedom to control other people's behavior. The F word, fear, it, it's a big one. I, I, the other F words I have no problem with, but fear is a big one. Uh, phobia. Biphobia is, is part of the equation. Let's dig into fear more. What what are people afraid of? What are people what are politicians making people more afraid of in the southern states these days more than ever? What is it? What's the root of it? Sociology would say, a sociologist would probably say that one of the ways that groups strengthen themselves as groups is to focus on an outside threat to the group. So you to have a group is stronger if there's a dangerous external other because it forces people to lock arms and you know, coalesce. Um, and I, I believe that there are a number of right-wing politicians in the United States right now who are intentionally you know, using fear, ginning up fear in order to strengthen their own um, base, to bring out the base. And there's always been, I mean, this is like the story of history. You could go through almost every historical moment and, you know, find someone who was the other. You know, in Germany, of course, it was the Jews, right? Those terrible Jewish people who are doing all this stuff. And I'm Jewish, by the way. So I find that particularly, you know, <laughs> offensive and awful. Um, they also, you know, demonize gay people. They also demonize gypsies. They also demonize Catholics. They also demonize lots, of, lots and lots of people. But all that was to create sense of self strong sense of self and, you know, unity of purpose and like we must defend ourselves against these terrible threats. You know, in the United States, it's been lots of people as well. It's been, it still is, you know, black and brown people, immigrants, undocumented people, um, LGBTQ people, especially now trans people, um, drag queens, like, which which is especially bewildering to me. It's like, I don't understand anything. I don't see anything scary about drag queens. I think they're I don't know. I think they're kind of cute, and, you know, and and um, the least scary people I know, honestly, 
the most fun people I know. I'm, I'm co-hosting with Lucy Flawless, um, an open mic during Pride Month in the town next to mine, Collingwood. And we're doing well, sort of an afternoon on stage. And it's the thing I'm looking most forward to this summer because fun is sort of the F word there. Books are dangerous. Like all these things are dangerous. And, and honestly, yeah, they're trying to hold on to the world as it was in their perception in the 1950s or something, but the world isn't like that anymore. And they're trying to like squash down anything that would present a different possibility, but the world has changed and you know, no, no one gets to control what other people, no one should get to control what other people do or don't do. And, and I don't have to understand something in order to support its right to exist. I don't have to agree with something in order to support its right to exist. I just have to understand that different people have different perspectives and I need to get out of the way. Here's something that caught my eye related to what you just said from social media about people who, uh, quote, don't understand same-sex relationships, for example. The author of which writes, and it makes me laugh, um, I don't understand Korean either, but I still know it's a real fucking language. Exactly. Like, there's lots of stuff I don't understand, but I don't understand why people go to baseball games. Go and have fun. Like, go and have fun. Just don't force me to go, right? That's like... Speaking of trying to make me do something... It always made me laugh where, where, where the person who is phobic, afraid of gay people, it usually goes like this, and it's a man. It's a hetero-identifying man that says, I don't got no problem with gays as long as they don't touch me. You're the last person anyone wants to touch because we see it in your face. We, we, we see who you are as you walk in the room, afraid maybe that gay-looking person might talk to me. Phobia is a so powerful thing, isn't it? That, that quote is very funny. I have an Etsy shop where I sell, um, it's called Byproducts, BI Products. I get it. And proceeds from that shop go to support by Women Quarterly, which is you know quarterly publication I edit and which is available online at bywomenquarterly.com for anybody anywhere in the world who wants to read it. One of my very favorite pins in that shop says, I'm bisexual and I'm not attracted to you. <laughs> right, there it is. Just in case you were wondering. And also, if somebody propositions you and you're not interested, there's actually a really um, amazing strategic way to get out of that situation is to say, no, thank you. Robin, I do have uh, empathy, uh, sympathy and empathy for, for people who, at any age really, because I'm not ageist, but I remember being college age and I remember being at a party and I remember a, a guy propositioning me and I remember... And I knew later, I didn't know in the moment why it bothered me so much. It bothered me so much because I was, I was unknowingly uh, bisexual. I respond to those people now with some empathy because they're just not ready yet, whether they're 16 or 22 or 92. Yeah, there is research showing that people who um, show highest, higher levels of, of homophobia also um, exhibit higher levels of sexual response when shown gay porn. Um, and then also, I'll, I'll also just add that I believe that people who are, and this is related, people who are entirely comfortable in their own identities don't usually feel a need to police other people's. Love it. Why would it matter so much? Like there are people who make their career trying to, you know, keep LGBTQ plus people down. Like why? Like why? And most uh, commonly, they're the ones that we read the stories about as, as coming out. Um, or getting caught, now coming out on their own. Robin, you're joining us now from the American state that has the distinction of being the very first state to make it possible to do something you did. 
on the very first day it was possible to do. Tell us about this. Ah, so I live in Massachusetts, which was the first state to um, legalize same-sex marriage. And November 18th, 2003, the Supreme Judicial Court ruled that it was legal, that the state didn't have the right to deny us the right to marry. And they gave the legislature six months to figure out all the logistics and details. So on six months later to the day, on May 17th, 2004, my wife and I, along with hundreds of other same-sex couples, got married. And um, yeah, so my wife and I were the first same-sex couple married in Brookline, Massachusetts. And it was just the most amazing, amazing day and to be part of history. And also, I served on the board of Mass Equality for 12 years. And Mass Equality is our statewide um, LGBTQ advocacy organization. And so we're the folks who put together a coalition and fought against um, all attempts to make once once the Supreme Judicial Court ruled, the legislature tried to make it illegal legislatively, and it took us three years to fight that fight and win. And but through about three years later, we succeeded, and you know it became one hundred percent legal and you know not open to discussion or debate anymore. And so. I can't believe it's been 19 years because May 17th was our 19th anniversary of being legally married in, in Massachusetts. And it feels like, I don't know, 19 years sounds like a really long time. So coincidence, perhaps not that May 17th is also rather important annually recognized the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia, is it not? It is. It is. And actually, um, we were married, I believe, before... Idaho had been created as a holiday, um, but it was it happened it happened within they happened within a few years of each other, and in addition, in the United States, coincidentally or perhaps not coincidentally, May seventeenth, two thousand and four, was also the fiftieth anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision. And for those who don't know what that was. Brown versus Board of Education decision was the decision that struck down racial segregation in education. It was a huge, it's a huge, you know, historic step forward for civil rights in the United States. So to be married on that same date was pretty cool, pretty meaningful for more than one reason. In the 60s, Robin, and through the 70s, really, uh, John Lennon was fascinated by the use of media and the messages that it sent out. And he and Yoko tried to make a point of saying not what they were against, rather what they were in favor of. In other words, they weren't against war as much as they were for peace. They weren't as much against Republicans as they were in favor of supporting a candidate that made sense to them. And and thinking back to what you said earlier about you know Nazi Germany and, and some of the stuff going on in the southern U.S. that wants to push down and push back anything that's not the same as us, the very us and them. It's a pyramid because you at the top in your own little life or you at the top wanting to have more power and everybody below you, you want to come along and support you so you can have a great career. I've always said the, the, the job of a politician, first and foremost, and, and this isn't the greatest definition of it, but it's what's happened, is to continue to be a politician. And at, at what expense? Well, usually at the expense of a group that's not like you. We want all these people to think the way we think so we can get more votes. 
it is frightening how many people were willing to go along with something that they knew wasn't right. Because these guys, the DeSantis's of the world, and I'm giving him more shine than he should probably have, but he's a great example. I really don't think that he goes home and hangs out with his wife and teaches the kids to think this way. This is, to me, it's all an act. It's all a stage. It's all a way to, to get a gig that pays well. Did they really tell their kids that these things that we know to be untrue and not helpful and not humane and I don't buy their shit. They're, they're actors. I believe they are. I think that there are probably some who believe what they say, but I think many of them certainly don't believe it, or at least they don't believe it to the extent that they promote it. And you're right, they're, they're just trying to um, get the reaction that they want. They're trying to get a reaction, they're trying to get votes. And if anyone's thinking, oh, well, politicians don't make that much money when they're in office. No, they don't, but later they make a lot of money. I, I think there's an encouraging uh, thread here, uh, certainly in all the things that I read from you and about you through your Instagram, uh, Robin Oaks, and that is the youth. Now, there are young people that are drinking the Kool-Aid of their um, intolerant parents, so that's that's another issue, and that's never gone away. But there are a lot of young people that have greater attitudes than we were ever sort of indoctrinated with. That is more live and let live, more acceptance of, of gay and, and trans and bi and, and, and all the spectrum. Um, and you work and you certainly have affected. Off the top, I talked about you being a teen Vogue superhero. There's encouraging news around youth and their attitudes. Can you speak to that a little bit about what you're seeing and what you're experiencing? Yeah, I mean, so much of what I, I know now I've learned from from young people, they on average, you know, they've grown up much less encumbered by some of the restrictions, the thought restrictions that we had. They've had much more access to information. Um, when you look at young people right now, about 20% of young people in the United States self-identify as LGBTQ+. In some places in the United States, certainly not in all, being LGBTQ+, really isn't any like big drama anymore. It is it is it is definitely in some families and it is definitely in some places, but the number of places and the number of families where it's it's okay and where it's comfortable has grown dramatically. You know, most young people, you know, know other people who identify the same way they do. Most young people, you know, know kids who have grown up with same gender parents. Most young people, you know, know trans people or non-binary people like there's just they just have so much more information and I do believe that media has actually played a big role in this when you look at where my wife and I are watching Love Victor on Netflix right now and that's a sequel to Love Simon and and it's like the story they're coming out stories their kids coming out you know in and the fact that you can turn on any kind of device, whether it's your phone or your television or your whatever you're watching on, and see stories like this. Um, there are so many things out there now that it still may be hard to come out in an individual family, but even those kids have the understanding and the knowledge and the information that they're not the only ones and that other realities are possible. Um, and I just... I just I, I do sometimes wonder like how my journey would have been different if I had grown up 
with Mother Google, with the internet. You know, if I had grown up in a world with, you know, gender and sexuality alliances, GSAs, and, you know, in, in high schools, I wonder what I would have been like if I had been able to turn on the television and see anything that wasn't like heterosexual and cisgender. Like, I wonder. I don't know. Well, then you have me questioning, as you may have as well, what your job might have been, because there wouldn't have been as much need for the voice that you've uh, given all of this if it had been so-called normalized a lot sooner. What would you be doing? What might you have done, do you think, differently? That's a good question. I probably wouldn't be a quote-unquote professional bisexual right now. <laughs> like I'd probably be something else, but... That would be that would certainly be worth the loss of a, of a career, <laughs> like tending my garden and and I, I would probably be full time doing environmental activism right now. You know, I, I that I believe very that's really urgent. Um, Anti racist work is urgent. Animal I do animal rescue work, finding homes for rescue kittens and cats. Um, you know, from the southern United States, there's lots of stuff that's urgent. So I'm sure I'm sure I would be doing something. But I would love, I would love to have my work become obsolete. I would love for that to happen. Like, wouldn't it be a great day if, if everybody was comfortable with, you know, with other people's gender and sexualities? Oh, gosh. One of the reasons it seems, um, one of the narratives among people who aren't comfortable with any of it is that, and back to drag queens, is somehow that um, the word groomer, these people are grooming my children to do what they're doing. And. It seems absolutely ludicrous to me to to assign that analysis on what's really going on. What do you do with that word groomer? What, what does that do for you? What does that even mean? You know, when I, I sometimes ask, I've asked young people like what what they think is going on. Why are the numbers so much higher today? Why, why is such a larger percentage of you know, young people identifying as LGBTQ plus? Um, and they just say we have information and we have a sense of possibility that that maybe you didn't have. And it's like, it's an information is not grooming. I'm sorry. That, that word, they use these words that are just so bizarre. Like, are they grooming people to be Republicans? Are they grooming people to be this? Are they grooming people to be that? Like, what does that mean? And that they, they're using that word because it has the history of like sexual predators. That's not what's going on at all. And and I just, I just don't accept that language. I, I do not. I don't like it. I don't accept it. And I, I won't use it. Like it's, it's garbage. I'm with you. Your own personal story, because you, you touched on it earlier and, and I don't want you to say anything you don't want to say. And I know you wouldn't say anything you don't want to say because it's your personal life. However, you are uh, not only bisexual, but you're monogamous. You're, you're loyal to, to, to your partner is what I understood it to be. People often ask, you know, how does that work? You're bi. Does that mean you just have sex with anybody anytime? I said, no, what we've agreed to, if I'm with someone, a partner, what we've agreed to is what we've agreed to, and, and being loyal is doing what you agreed to, whatever that is. And relationships take many different forms. There's open ones. There's 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 loyal ones. There's you know. Um, how did how how has it worked for you? And and is it just plain about honesty? And then and you do what you do, and you agree to do it, and then you do that thing. Well, I will say that. Sometimes when I say I'm monogamous, people think, oh, well, you're just thinking everyone should be monogamous. I don't really care what other people do. Like if somebody else wants to be in a poly relationship or not any relationship at all, like that's absolutely fine with me. 
I think that each individual has the right to think about this, to decide what works best for them, and to engage in that kind of relationship, whatever that is. You know, some people choose no relationship. Some people choose to have, you know, two partners. Some people choose to have lots of partners. That's fine. Like, that is not any business of mine. And I support each person's right to make their own decisions. I think on this whole topic, um, I'm not pro-monogamy, I'm pro-choice. The reason that I am monogamous is that I can't imagine having the emotional energy nor the time to juggle multiple people's needs. Um, that has never made sense to me. Like I've never been able to imagine myself in a situation like that. And it's not because I think monogamy is the be all end all that everyone should do. It's just because that's what works best for me. It's simpler. Speak if you would to the word fluid and fluidity, because, uh, I think that it's, it's, it's relevant and, uh, and uh, to a lot of people and, and, and where does it come in for you? When did you first hear about that word and what does it mean? Well, the word fluidity is, I mean, the word fluid has lots of different uses. One is some, for some people, that's actually how they identify their sexuality. They identify as fluid, meaning that actually there could be a lot of meanings. One thing I know about identity is that if you ask a hundred people who use any particular identity, you will get more than one definition. So when I think of the word fluid, what comes to mind is it can either mean someone who acknowledges multi-gender attraction or it could be someone who feels that they're who they're attracted to varies at different points in their lives, different times, or it could be both. So fluid, fluid is a fluid word. I've noted in promoting the fact that you're going to be on this podcast, Robin, to all of my music friends, that uh, there's a special intersection with my other podcast, which is about music. It's called Records and Rockstars. Born in December 1942, months after John Lennon, of whom we spoke, um, in El Paso, Texas, a man sharing his last name with you, who was sung about by David Bowie and mentioned in novels by Stephen King and spoken of in sentences that include names like Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger, a man who wrote hundreds of songs and put out eight albums. And, and like you, he made it his life's mission to stand up united in cause. Talk a bit about the impact on you of your uncle, Phil Oaks. My uncle, Phil, um, had a huge impact on on me and I believe on my family. You know, he was a person who believed in speaking speaking truth to power and speaking out when you know when he saw injustice. He did a lot of he wrote he wrote a lot of songs about about civil rights. He wrote a lot of songs about you know he wrote Bracero about you know migrant workers. He wrote songs about all kinds of political things that were happening in the world. Um, he fought really hard against the Vietnam War, for example. And and, it, and sometimes in very creative ways. There was this one rally where they declared the war. You see, I think they were wondering what would happen if we just said the war was over. So they had a the war is over rally in Central Park. And it was huge and it was amazing. And it was one of the ones I actually got to go to. But 
what I learned from my uncle is again, when something's wrong, it's on you to do something about it. And my mom is very much like that. She's a major, you know, community activist. She's always been engaged in, you know, a number of different issues. Even at age 86, she's still, you know, doing what she can. Um, and that's how that's that, that those are the values that I've inherited and learned. I often, Robin, I often ask, uh, well, the members of Fleetwood Mac, for example, I asked each of them the same question and, and, and they, and they enjoyed answering it at first. They, they had to, they had to pause to, to come up with an answer, but, uh, I'd love to know yours around if you had to write your own epitaph in a sentence, how would it read? She made a difference. And you really are. And I'm really thrilled that you came on the Blue Hotel podcast. You're a hero of mine, and I thank you, Robin Oaks. Thank you, Jeff. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Please take me back to the Blue Hotel. The Blue Hotel Podcast, just about every Thursday at midnight Eastern. Follow, listen, enjoy, rate, review, share, repeat. Thank you. Till next time, I'm Jeff Woods. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.